0: Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast, exploring the big picture of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. I'm Brent Siddle, and I'm joined once again by the Reverend Ian Reed Rideau of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And today, Rido, welcome. We're Thank back. You. Yeah, we're back in Palmerston North, and we're looking at the Book of Hebrews again. And we're up to the first part of Chapter 10, and we'll look at verses one to ten today but before we do that you've just been we've just been sitting here talking and you've been telling me fascinating things about the sheer cost of producing a written manuscript in the first century AD.
1: Well I was told that uh, the book of Romans would have cost about $20,000 to produce just because if you're paying for a scribe they're, they're kind of they're very costly that was their job uh, and it would take quite a bit of time to to get it all written down, to get it perfected. Uh, but they would often make they would make three copies, one for themselves, two to be sent out, one by land and one by sea, and it was a very costly thing to do, about about twenty thousand uh, dollars to kind of do that. So I'm sure Hebrews would would have been in the same kind of area because it's quite a long book, uh, and it would be a huge investment. For the churches at that time to kind of put into something like that, obviously we should be very thankful for that, that investment. Uh, but you think about just the cost of getting the New Testament together, particularly Luke's writings. You know, Luke, Luke writes one third of the New Testament. You know, how costly it would have been to put all that together.
0: And uh, before the days of computers,
1: these would have been written on something called papyrus. Yeah, and so it's not. There's no paper. There's no printing press or anything like that. Uh, and so there's this. It's very expensive. It's very time consuming. Uh, it's a very difficult job. But the thing that we need to remember is that these scribes, that that is their job to do. That they're very careful in what they do. You could pay for different quality of scribes, uh, and it seems that the, the the scribes that they've used to produce the New Testament were very good. Uh, and but the the kind of the way that they did it was it was a very slow kind of process.
0: Yeah, and so you you really want the top scribes, the ones that charge the most, presumably.
1: Well, I guess so. <laughs> Just like in the modern world, really, isn't it?
0: Anyway, today we're coming on to chapter 10 of the Epistle to Hebrews, Ian. How does chapter 10 tie all the themes of the letter together?
1: This is, I think this is probably my favourite part of the, of the whole book. If you can have a favourite part of the Bible, I don't know. But uh, it's, it's kind of everything coming together. All of this idea of who Jesus is, what God has done through him the whole idea of sacrifice and what he has achieved for us we're going to get that right at the end what he has achieved and this is the kind of the crescendo i think
0: how has hebrews 9 and indeed all of hebrews so far shown us that
1: jesus is sufficient well in hebrews 9 we we there was a lot of talk about blood uh, and that jesus blood was the thing that brings us redemption and so we are uh, kind of redeemed through him our the sacrifice of, of Jesus pays for our penalty of sin. Mm.
0: Okay, let's start with uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. I shall read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, Ian, well, again, possibly some Platonic influences there and again in verse 1 with the shadow and the true form of these realities, uh, which is sort of almost like kind of Greek philosophical platonic style language uh, what's the writer saying about the
1: law then well the, the law uh, kind of is is pointing forward to something else and so that's the highlight whole idea between uh, what you're saying there then platonic thinking you know, kind of comes from plato that there was this the perfect there's the realm of the perfect ideas uh, the f- perfect forms and we just see shadows of those things on earth so in those realms the perfect dog and the I don't know, perfect chair, the perfect fork, whatever, you know, kind of whatever you can think of on earth is a perfect form of that somewhere else. Uh, but here it's saying that Jesus is bringing all of those things uh, kind of to fruition, to kind of uh, to, to its end, uh, because the things that we see on earth in, in the way that God has expressed himself uh, kind of in the in the temple and the sacrifices there and all those other things are kind of coming together. Now, the interesting thing that he says here about the law Uh, is that it itself is a shadow. It's kind of, it's not that the law is bad or anything like that, but it's pointing forward to something else. How is the law
0: only the shadow of the good things that have come in Christ? What does he mean by that?
1: You ask hard questions, Brent. Thank you. (laughs) It's my job. Uh, Because the law kind of, it it condemns us, ultimately. That's the big problem with the law. The law is not bad. The law is actually good and can bring life. uh, But... Ultimately, what it does is it shows you what you cannot do, and that brings death. And so what it is doing is pointing us forward to something else that we need. So what did the law actually do then, Rito? I think it, it does several things. The two things that I think are really important, one one is it reveals what God is like. It shows his true heart. It shows that he's a holy God. Uh, it shows that he's a God that that loves people and even loves his creation. Uh, when you get into the nitty-gritty of the law, you see that. Uh, but the second thing uh, that it does is it reveals our sin. And this is the big thing that it does. It's like a huge torch on our hearts saying, this is what not what you're like. You should be like this, but you're not like this. And so it reveals our sin in, sh- in showing us what is deep down in our hearts. Why then wasn't the sacrificial system ultimately enough? Because ultimately what it's doing is pointing forward to a bigger sacrifice that's coming. But it because the... The blood of bulls and goats, as it kind of says, it cannot cover human sin. Human sin is too cosmic. It's too eternal in some way that the animals just cannot pay, pay for it.
0: So what was really needed then to make an atonement for human sin? What was really
1: needed? A human sacrifice, which is kind of odd because human sacrifices are so kind of uh, shunned in the Old Testament, aren't they? Mm. That the law talks about human sacrifice a lot. You cannot do that. There's no way you can do that, and so it's it, it's not that it's odd that, that that kind of God does this. That and we'll see why in a minute. But the reason being is that no other human can pay for the sin of another human.
0: Mm. How were the Old Testament sacrifices an annual reminder of sin?
1: Because what they did was they kind of bunched up all the sin together, and they said hey, all of that sin that we're doing this year, and so you had the Day of Atonement, you, you had all of these things going on, you had all of these sacrifices coming together, uh, and it was at that point that, that God is kind of, kind of worshipping God by these sacrifices.
0: So part of the uh, function of the sacrificial system would have been to help deal, uh, so that people could deal with things
1: like guilt and shame, presumably. You other that really interesting thing, uh, in the Old Testament, of the uh, the scapegoat, you know that that actually comes mm. from the Old Testament law. That it was a way of dealing with shame and, and guilt in the community. That you had two goats; one was sacrificed uh, as a, a guilt offering, and I think is that right? And then the, the the scapegoat, everyone put their hand on it, and the shame of the community is let out into the wilderness, sent
0: it out into the desert.
1: It's yeah. kind of this odd thing, isn't it, mm. that that goes on there? But the idea is that even though it, it's not effective in terms of actually taking away guilt or taking away sin or shame or anything like that, it's a reminder of what God is going to do. How does
0: our modern secular culture today deal with things like guilt and shame?
1: Can it deal with things like guilt and shame? No. It tries to, but ultimately you have to say no. And so that's why, you know, all, all ways of do, dealing with guilt and shame are, are forms of therapy. Is that that it's kind of dealing with our heart in a way that we see things in there that are just awful, and we, we deal with them in forms of therapy. Whether that's actual therapy through counselling and things like that, not that those things are necessarily bad. They can be really helpful. Uh, but we're trying to pigs our heart somehow and trying to trying to cover over the cracks uh, with with forms of therapy. I I think. Uh, even porn is actually a form of therapy that's a way of dealing with what I see in my heart or how I feel about myself is I want to make myself feel better by doing things or and that's just somewhat an extreme example but there are lots of different examples of how we try and make ourselves feel better and by doing that it's a form of therapy.
0: What do you say to someone who's burdened by guilt or shame?
1: Don't lean into it understand your heart. Because when we, when we try and form uh, kind of ways of dealing with the guilt and shame, what they end up doing is they lead us further and further deeper into that guilt and shame. Uh, and so you need to understand your heart first in understanding why you're feeling that way. And then you need to go to Jesus and see that he is the one who's able to deal with it.
0: Okay, coming on to verses 5 to 10 of chapter 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. This is now a quote, isn't it, Rito? Yeah. From Psalm 40, I think. But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. These our once and for all again, uh, Yep. Yeah. So why does the writer quote from Psalm 40 here?
1: Well, because right back in the Psalms, it's almost prophetic. Uh, and this is the thing that keeps popping up in the Old Testament. It's not everywhere, but it keeps popping up that even though you've got this sacrificial system, even though you, it seems to be that is the way that you atone for your sin, you have in David's uh, Psalms, uh, in the, some of the other wisdom literature, but definitely in the prophets, you have this idea that God does not desire sacrifice. He desires something else. What is it he desires? But a body you have prepared for me. Elsewhere it talks about, you know, kind of a, a, a merciful heart and things like that. That these are the things that really that God desires, that the sacrifices are not the thing that gets us into a relationship with God, but they're pointing to something else. So what does what does God desire of us then? Well, what the question really is, what does David mean there by a body you have prepared mm. for me? Isn't that it's interesting that it's not something you prepare yourself, but God prepares it for you in some way and i think ultimately it's a changed heart that that you need the spirit to change your heart so that you come and you worship god and you stop being a rebel ultimately you know we talked about that Mm. in our our last podcast uh that we stop being rebels and that a changed heart comes uh, and worships god rather than worships ourselves
0: yeah how does the lord jesus christ though fulfill the psalm
1: well, what is the sacrifice that, that he offers? Right? It's not those other sacrifices, but it's himself uh, that he comes and, and offers. And uh, in that, look at what it says there in verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That it is him that has come to offer that sacrifice on our behalf.
0: Okay, so how does Jesus fulfill the law then and establish a new covenant? How long have we got? It's, as long as you like.
1: <laughs> no, well, I'll try and be short. Uh, the, all of the threads of the Old Testament, all, you know, all of the law, everything is coming to a head in Jesus, in him as, in his body, uh, in him as a person. And you have this idea uh, that he is kind of the word come to life. Uh, that, that is so strong, in, particularly in the book of John. Uh, but as he lives out that word, we see that he lives out the law. And he lives out in a way which we don't expect. He's not like a pious Pharisee uh, that he kind of is going around feeling all righteous about himself because he's being obedient to the law. But he lives out the law in the sense that he is always in relationship with the Father and he never stops doing that. And so, because of that, because he lives that perfect life life of worship to the Father, uh, he's able to come and be the sacrifice that we need.
0: What is the new covenant then? Because we talked about this last time. What is the new covenant established by Jesus?
1: Well, Jesus says, particularly uh, when we see him at the Last Supper, what is he saying? This is the new covenant. Uh, My body and and blood are being broken. My body being broken, my blood being spilled for you. That what is he doing? He's making a new covenant that's not based on law, because the law has been fulfilled, but it's based on his blood. That first covenant, the law, is based on blood, but the blood of animals. As it's sprinkled on the people, Jesus saying uses the same words and says, this is the new covenant, my body, uh, that that's being destroyed for your sake. And in that, it's not one based on law, but it's based on his grace and, and on his righteousness rather than ours.
0: How has Jesus lived a life of perfect worship then?
1: That's a good question, isn't it? That he is the perfect worshipper, because that, that is what we're created to do. This is something that we probably don't always realize but what god creates us to to do and when you look at adam and eve uh, in genesis 1 and 2 what what are they created to do to be worshipers and you almost have this sense that the the garden of eden and even the uh the the promised land and, and we get the same idea right at the end of revelation of the, the new heaven the new earth they're all these little temples almost where god exists Uh, And we come and worship him in those spaces, that they're all places of worship and we are created to be worshippers. The problem is, is that when we rebel against God, we become self-worshippers.
0: And that's really been the, the two stories of humanity all the way through the Bible, isn't it? You've got God's story and then humanity's story. Humanity's story, really, us being created to worship God and be image bearers of God and ending up being rebels and going
1: off and following our own narrative, really. And what you see in Jesus is the opposite, isn't it? When he comes to Earth, he spends his whole time doing one thing—worshipping the Father. Uh, and that doesn't mean that he's kind of sitting and praying off somewhere, you know, by himself. Although that does there are points where he does do that, but he's not kind of off in the desert. You kind of constantly, you know, away from people. That worship actually takes place with people. Mm.
0: Uh, I want to just come back to verse ten uh, of Hebrews ten. Hebrews ten, ten, and by that will we have been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Okay, Ian, how have we
1: been sanctified then? If I have a favorite part of Hebrews. It's chapter 10, and my favourite verse is this verse, uh, because of how clear it is. I think the NIV probably is a little bit help, more helpful in the language that it uses, rather than sanctify it uses the word holy, which is the same thing, just a different word. Uh, but look at that. And by that will, we have been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of jesus christ once and for all it's through his body it's nothing else that we we can do it's not our faith even that does that but it is through jesus body
0: yeah so why is being a christian then about becoming
1: what we already are because if that is what we have been made into then that's what we already are we've been declared that we're already seated in the heavenly realms as paul says says Elsewhere, and so if we already are that, that is what we're being made into. So it's not like we're living a hypocritical life when we say, "Oh, I keep sinning," you know, "I keep failing." You know, how can I, how can God kind of accept me? It's not that. It's it's that we are becoming what we already are. We are becoming holy because we already are holy. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, we're just going to explore this for a bit because it can get a bit confusing. This this business. Uh, How so? How then have we been
1: perfected or made holy? Well, and, what, and what is being made holy anyway? Yeah, that's right. I think, well, let me answer the second question first. Being made holy is about being set apart for God's use. And so an item that is holy is an item that God uses uh, for his own worship. And so that that's what it means to be holy ultimately. Uh, and so the question is, how do we be made holy? Uh, well, it, it's you know kind of items in the Old Testament. How are they made holy? They're made holy by blood. And so you have all the, the tabernacle, the, the, all the items used in worship, they're all made holy by blood, and they were holy. That's the thing, that they, they were used in worship of God. And what Hebrews is saying is that you have been made holy too because you have had Jesus' blood sprinkled on you. Not the blood of a bull or a goat or a sheep or anything like that, but divine blood sprinkled over you. So how could you be made any holier than that? Yeah, so how then does Jesus empower us to be obedient? Well, once we've been made holy, we are given his spirit. And so this is the, he gives, you know, the Father and the Son, they pour out the Spirit on us so that we, our hearts are changed. Uh, and this is quite a, a, a kind of an amazing thing that God does to us, that, that we are empowered by the Spirit to live the way and do, do his will. Okay, uh, we're
0: talking about being made holy or being sanctified as the ESV has it. We're going to come on next time and talk about Bible translations um, because we've been asked about this. But what is this thing called sanctification, and how does it work? That's a
1: hard question, isn't it, (laughs) to to answer. Uh, But sanctification is about being made clean. Uh, And so it's that something is unclean, that it's uh, unworthy almost, Uh, and it is being washed in a way to to, uh, kind of be made holy or kind of be made clean again in some way.
0: Mm. And so why does the writer then say in verse 10 that we've been made holy or sanctified as though it's already happened, Uh, but yet in verse 14 he goes on to say we are being sanctified. How can we be both holy and not holy at the same time?
1: It's kind of the now and not yet that, that people often talk about is that uh, and we need to realize that, that sanctification and justification are not exactly the same thing that justification is being declared to be righteous where sanctification is much more about being made to be holy which is something different uh, but the, the sanctification is about God uh, making us to be holy for his purpose so if we are washed with his blood then that has already happened. There's no, there's no kind of going back on that. But at the same time, we're in the process of being made what we already are. And so it's this kind of idea that we are holy and we are becoming holy at the same, same point. Uh, that It's not that we're kind of going to kind of reach this point of perfection, as we live our lives that that won't happen we are already made holy in god's eyes because of jesus blood but at the same time we're slowly living that out and by the spirit what's happening he's getting rid of that sin he's showing us what it looks like how it's self-destructive and he's making us better worshipers
0: so we need to keep turning away from sin and getting rid of sin in our lives and seek to become more like the lord jesus christ that's that's i guess progr- what they call progressive sanctification
1: yeah, and so there's, uh, there's those two ideas, isn't there, of progressive sanctification being one of that process. What's the other?
0: Uh, well, you, you, interestingly, you, you intrigued me greatly when I heard you preach on this in church because you you called it positional sanctification. And twenty years ago, an old guy like me in the textbooks, it was definitive sanctification. Oh, okay. well, yeah, but I guess it's the same. It's the, obviously the same thing. I'd never heard. I would actually never heard that phrase positional sanctification, but it makes sense. I think it was just the two Ps kind of worked together. <laughs> well, it, it, it makes sense, though. It's In some ways, it's more meaningful than the term definitive because it's positional. It's showing it's where you are in the process.
1: Yeah, and so, so there's two ideas, isn't it? positional sanctification, this is who I am, this is where I'm at, and progressive is that I'm becoming what I already am. You know, kind of. And I think that's quite a helpful kind of idea, isn't it? Mm, yeah, it's very interesting. So um, th-
0: what is the difference then, Rito, between... Sanctification, being made holy, and an ongoing work of holiness, and becoming more like Jesus. Uh, how does that relate to this thing we've talked about before called justification? Because sometimes these two things get confused in theology, don't they?
1: Yeah, and they're not the same thing. No. The, the justification is more of a legal kind of term, where it's a kind of a declaration of not necessarily a declaration of not of being innocent. But a declaration of, of that you're just, that, that the relationship uh, kind of legally is kind of being, being dealt with, where sanctification is being set apart for God's God's purpose and use, which is a bit more relational, I think, in, in the way that we might use it.
0: Yeah, and so justification is really this idea of the law court, again, where uh, God has declared us to be righteous, his gavel has come down, so we go to court, and uh, the judge says to us, uh, you're free to go, and we say, why? Uh, Because someone someone else has paid for you, someone else has paid for your crime, someone else has paid for your sin, and we ask the judge, who's that? And he says, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's paid for your sin, and God has declared you Righteous, And as we talked about last week, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And then we have this thing called sanctification where we are declared holy and then we, are, we go on in the Christian life to seek to become more like Jesus. What happens if we confuse the two terms, though, which theologians have done through the centuries and it's, it's made for a right, a
1: right to mess? Uh, I think there's a couple of problems. One in particular is that we think that God is only interested in the transaction. And so that he isn't actually interested in relationships. He isn't actually interested in you becoming more of what you already are. And so what ends up happening is what Paul tends, has to deal with is it in Romans 6, where he is kind of saying, well, why not just go and sin? You know, you kind of, if I've been justified, why not just go and sin? And yeah, this is called antinomianism. Yeah, so mm. we're be, being that I'm kind of against the law, you know, kind of that there needs to be no law in my life because I've been justified, so therefore I can do whatever I like. like. And so, um, you know, that that's one, one massive area is that if you... If you confuse the two, you end up saying my my sanctification is important because I've been justified. But the opposite can also be true, is that you think that your sanctification is and justification if they're kind of dependent on each other, and so that my justification can only be sure if my sanctification is right. Yeah,
0: so if I feel saved or I feel holy.
1: Or even, I think, right, yes, rightly so. And even worse than that, it can be if I'm doing the things that look like a saved person, right? So kind of a legalist kind of sense. Yes,
0: I need signs that I've been justified and what are those signs? I'm I'm leading a
1: holy life. Yeah. And that, that can be one of the things, or I'm... Kind of uh, displaying spiritual gifts, particular spiritual gifts, maybe can be another way, uh, which I think is dangerous as well. But that, that these external signs, whether it's my behaviour or these kind of external gifts that I'm displaying, are ways at which I can confirm that I'm justified or sanctified.
0: And so, really, once we lose the sense of justification as a one off declarative thing, uh, as a kind of almost a legal act on God's part. It's a clumsy way of saying it, but uh, it's, it's an objective thing. It's outside anything we can do. It's not subjective. It isn't dependent on our performance or on our feelings on a particular day. God has done it. He's given it to us. He's declared it. And that makes the distinction between justification and sanctification clear.
1: And I think this is the most important part of assurance, isn't it, is that it is not about what I have done it's external to me. It's not about how I feel. It's not even about how I live. It must be external to me. And that external thing comes and impacts how I feel. It impacts how I live. But it is a once and for all, as we keep seeing here uh, in in Hebrews, that because it is external, Jesus' death and resurrection have done it. And we can, we can definitively say it is finished.
0: Yeah. And so as we close, uh, let's bring it down to practical basics, Ian. How... Uh, are we progressively sanctified what's what's what is the process
1: it's by the spirit and so as jesus has declared us both to be justified but also to be sanctified to be holy we are becoming that 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 kind of sanctified person that holy person that god wants uh, through the spirit he empowers us to do that now if i work really hard and try to do that myself I can never get there. I need the spirit. I don't want to be sanctified, really. I want to go and live in my sin. Uh, but God restrains that from me. Uh, and he keeps showing me how that's self-destructive. Uh, and I think on my part, what do I do? I need to live in that that kind of idea that that he's shown me the sin. He's shown me how self-destructive. I have the choice to go and live that way or not to live that way. Now, if I wasn't justified, or I wasn't sanctified, I don't think I would be seeing those self-destructive things and I wouldn't have the, the option but to choose the self-destructiveness.
0: No, so the Spirit guides us. He dwells and dwells us after we're saved and he guides us into uh, into godly living, really, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, that doesn't mean that we're perfect straight away. And I think it is that kind of guidance. And people often ask me, oh, I just don't feel, I don't feel saved. Or, you know, look at my life. It's full of sin and all these things. And I said, but I, and I often say, now, if you weren't, saved and if you didn't have the Spirit, do you think you'd be able to see that sin? And, and so I, s- I often say, because you can see your sin, to me, that shows you that you have the Spirit. If you couldn't see your sin, you kind of, you'd have a, you'd have a bit, of, bit of a problem. And so, I don't know if that's ever cheered anyone up or encouraged anyone, but I think it's helpful to say, just to keep reminding ourselves that the, the evidence of our salvation is not that, the, um, that sin is in our lives, it's that we're taking sin seriously. And even though we may give into it a lot or a little or whatever, uh, it's that we know that it's there uh, and we know that God hates it and he's working in us.
0: Okay, thank you, Ian, the Reverend Ian Reed rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Uh, and uh, thank you for your time and thank you for this uh, study of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1
1: to 10. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure
0: you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.